Well, good morning. Let's begin with a prayer as we open God's Word today. God, I ask uh, this morning that you would speak as you've spoken for centuries, that this deposit of faith that's been passed on would be faithfully transmitted again, that we might share this good news, God, with the world. God, you created this world as a good place, and yet there's so much that has caused disruption and dysfunction and relational discomfort. And so God, today in the midst of uh, the places we find our lives in, God, would today be a word that you would provide of, of hope, a word of healing, a word that would challenge us to be the people in this world that you want us to be as your people, as your incarnation in this world. We, we ask today, God, I pray that you would pour through me the gift of preaching, so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 with a poem, a poem that has a rhythm and a beat and a cadence to it. God speaks and the world is created day by day, and day by day you hear this phraseology, this rhythm again and again. He speaks, he steps back, he looks, and he calls it good. And It was evening and morning the first day. And day two, we see a similar uh, rhythm that happens. He speaks and he steps back and he watches and he calls it Good. And day after day, this is the rhythm that we see in Genesis 1 until that rhythm is changed on the sixth day. Because you see, on the sixth day, he creates animals, wild animals, but he continues on past just this creation of animals to a whole other being, humans. And I want to read on the, about the sixth day together this disruption, this change to the rhythm, because this disruption is so important for us to understand as we understand what our identity is as the people of God. This is Genesis 1 beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And then verse 31 God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You see, on the sixth day of creation, this rhythm of God creating and stepping back and calling it good is disrupted, but it's not bad, is it? It's good news. Because when he creates humans, he steps back, and he says, my image is stamped on each and every one of these humans. And he steps back, and instead of saying it was good, this time he changes the order. He says, it was very good. God creates humans and he calls it very good. And yet as we read Scripture, it's funny how fast we skip over Genesis 1 to Genesis 3. We talk about the fall more often, it seems, than the creation as it was created good in Genesis 1. But I think it's important this morning, as we think about flesh and God's movement to earth, and as we think about us taking on flesh, us being human as God has called us to be, it's vital that we see God's good news in Genesis 1. When he creates us, not just in the story of Adam, but when he creates all of us, God steps back from that creation and says, it's very good. 
So this morning, we come in with mixed messages. We come in with humans that would tell us that we're of no value and no worth. But I'm here to tell you, and I want to begin this message this morning by rooting us in Genesis 1 before we ever talk about Genesis 3. You're created in the image of God, every single one of you. And when God saw you created and, and came into the world, his pronouncement was the same of his, as his pronouncement over Adam. It's very good. You are enough, and your identity is secure in Jesus Christ. Now, we need to talk about Genesis 3. I don't want to get there without rooting us in this understanding of having the image of God in every single one of us, and of being everything we need to be, that we are the pinnacle of God's creation in the first six days of creation. And God calls it very good. We're the ultimate delight of his eye. And he, God calls the creation good. He, humans are very good. But somewhere along the way, we came to believe the truth of Genesis 3 even more than the truth of Genesis 1. And we all feel the impact of the fall, don't we? We've seen sin enter into the world, and we're messed up. Amen? And we can't do this on our own to secure relationship with God. We know that it's not just us. Creation is messed up. And so just a couple of weeks ago, we see the impact of Genesis 3 in our world as tornadoes come through our city. And some of us know the names of people who had their houses demolished. Some of us have been a part of the cleanup effort and seen some, some change happen. But all of this happens because of sin being unleashed in the world. And so we have tornadoes and mudslides and hurricanes. All this problem, creation is not what it once was. Genesis 3 introduces this conflict to the story. That sin separates us from God. That sin uh, causes separation between the creation and us, the creation and God. And most of us, when we heard the story of the good news, when we heard the gospel, it had something to do with this good news in Genesis 1 that got disrupted with this bit of bad news in Genesis 3. And the gospel I grew up hearing was about God's decision to send Jesus into the world. And why was he sent into the world? Well, sometimes I heard the message like this. I don't know if this is how it was said. This is just how it was caught. I, our, our job and Jesus' job was to come to earth so that we could escape from earth. It was a message of good news that said this world is bad. Matter is bad. Everything about this world is bad. And if we could just escape from this world, that's the good news. That's salvation. And I, I wonder if this story is familiar to you. The story of escapism from all that's going on being the hope of life with God. Now the bad news is that we are sinners and the earth is full of sin, wrath, and violence. And along with that idea came this idea that somehow our spirits, our souls, what's inside of us that makes us up, that's a good thing. But the body that encases that spirit, that soul, there's something bad about that. So one day God's going to allow our good souls to escape our bad bodies and we'll fly away to a place on the clouds in the heavens, and that'll be the good news. Does this sound familiar, this story? Well, what I want to proclaim to you today is this is not the Christian hope. God has never viewed this world as something to escape from. Now, it is true that our citizenship is in heaven, and this world is not our home. But God, throughout Scripture, has a clear desire to care deeply for humans, to care deeply for the creation, and to restore it all. I'm going to say more about this at the end of the series when we get to the second coming uh, in, 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 uh, down the road. But today I want to proclaim to you that some of what we've come to believe about the good news has more to do with what Plato taught and what Dante taught and what Saturday morning cartoons have taught rather than what Scripture teaches. 
Our hope is not to escape from the earth. In fact, it's interesting, these, these symbols on our wrists, the bracelets we've handed out and that we're going through in this series, the two bookends of this series are arrows pointed down, aren't they? And yet the story I've been told all my life is that the hope is about escape. But the hope of the world comes in through Jesus in this series we've been preaching that God comes to earth because he wants to redeem and restore people and his creation. And in the end, he's going to return again. Yes, he's ascended to the Father, and we, but we live awaiting a time where he's going to return. He's not going to give up on all of this. Now, don't hear me say that there isn't a hope of eternal life or eternal experience. Of course, this is the hope of Christian life. I have much more to, I want to say about this. But Scripture clearly teaches that the future hope in the Bible is not that we will escape our bodies and go to live someplace else. The hope of Christianity is a restored, resurrected body. It's far better than the one we have right now. Can I hear an amen? We long for that. And this is what Paul writes about to the church in Corinth. They had gotten some of this mixed up because in that culture, and still in our culture today, we're fighting this myth that Plato tells about the allegory of the cave. Do you know this story? talks about the allegory of the cave, and he talks about the world we live in as the shadow world. And the real action is going on someplace else. We live in the shadow world where the light casts its uh, you know, lens on the earth. And so we're living in this world, but really the real action is going on someplace else. And some of our, uh, us have been caught up in this story to believe Christianity to be telling the same thing. But Jesus tells a different story, and Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, open with me if you would to 1 Corinthians 15. This is key for Paul, and it's key for us understanding our morality, our ethics, how we're to live and called to live today. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has been indeed raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. And then when he comes, those who belong to him. So the story that Paul's telling is opposite the story that people in that day believed. They believed in the immortality of the soul. And that finally we can escape from these bad bodies. Then finally the good news is proclaimed. But Paul teaches something entirely different. He says, no, the body is actually something that's going to be resurrected. The body actually matters. We're not living in a world where the action's not going on. God is intensely concerned about this creation and at work here to restore this world as well. And Jesus comes to earth to give us a new picture of what it means to live fully in our humanity, to, to live what it means to a fully human life. God wants us to live a life on earth that we're called to with a high calling as humans. Remember, before the fall, God called humans and his creation good. God never intended to give up on humans or his creation. So Jesus comes not to help us escape our bodies or to escape the earth. Jesus comes to show us the best way we're called to live through the Holy Spirit's work in our life as redeemed people, just as it was in the very beginning. Jesus is like the owner's manual for us. He's the the original intention of how this was all supposed to go. 
And more and more, as I talked about last week, as we step into a life filled with the Holy Spirit, we hope to be able to proclaim, just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. How do we do that? We see the pattern of Jesus, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live new and restored lives. But most of us are on this journey still, aren't we? Not perfected this whole humanity thing. And and what I've noticed in the world is that all of us have this tendency to mess things up. We can point to our families often. We can point to all kinds of difficulties and struggles and challenges we've had, sins we've committed. And this is what I've noticed about the ways that we mess things up in the world as humans. I notice this in myself. Generally, when we mess things up in the world, we do it because we drift in one of two directions. When humans mess things up, it's because we tend to drift toward living like animals or living like angels. And neither of those narratives, neither of those stories are what we're actually called to live as humans. So first, let me talk about this animal instinct. Perhaps you've taken a safari before. You've seen uh, a Discovery Channel program on uh, the safari, the Serengeti, the animals that live on the plane. Perhaps that uh, show talked something about the mating habits of animals. The reason animals mate is because God's given them this instinct to continue the circle of life. But all that I've noticed in the animal world is there's not any dogs, there's not any lions who are saying to other lions or animals, uh, I just don't feel like you want me for more than my body, right? You don't see anyone saying, I think I'm more committed to this relationship than you are. That's not how the animal world works. Other than basic biological functions, there's nothing else going on. Animals thrive on pure instinct, on biology. It's what God has given to them, and God gave them these instincts. The problem with that description is that most often in our lives, it's amazing how often I'll hear what's described of animals, and the same language is applied to us as humans. And how many times have we heard stories, or maybe some of us have been on those spring break trips, and what's brought back from those Spring break experiences are stories about losing ourselves, of having our animal instincts lived out. You go to Cancun because what happens in Cancun stays in Cancun. In other words, spring break has become a week to let yourself go, to lose yourself, to give in to whatever cravings, desires, or urges you have, much like an animal. And what are the stories that are brought home? They begin like this usually, I can't believe I, or we totally lost our minds, or it was so out of control, or I can't even remember. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, give in to your animal instinct or party animal. These are phrases that are derived from this drift that humans make away from living as humans as God has called us to living as if instinct is the only thing that controls us. The other day I was at the mall and I noticed this guy who had an FBI shirt on. But he wasn't a part of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It said female body inspector on it. As if there are women who wake up every morning hoping to meet that guy, right? But this is an analogy of sorts of what this drift is for humans. See, animals live with bodies and no spirits. There's nothing more than biology or instinct. But when we're at our worst as humans, how many of us have experienced a similar thing? Thinking we can't control our our desires, that our instincts are all that control us. There's nothing that can keep us from living into this. And this finds itself in our culture and the ways that we look at women and the ways that pornography shapes uh, so many of our young men and and young women. I think this whole idea actually got started because of this whole idea of Plato that I was sharing. Because the idea is if if your body's bad but your soul's good, then the hope is one day you'll escape from the body. But until then, there's not much hope for morality. 
There's not much hope that you can live above the instincts that you have as a human being. It's actually a very depressing thing to believe in in the end. So it stands to reason in the Greek world that we'll not be able to act any better than the animals. This is just the way we're destined to live. And nowhere is the chronic despair of living like animals more visible than in the sex education curriculums in many of our schools. Many of which are based on the premise, well, kids are going to do it. So what do you get when you deconstruct that idea? What you get is a loss of hope. It's despair that's actually speaking in that. What it is is to say, well, we're just animals with bodies and we have no control over this whole thing. It's not realism, it's despair. It's the voice that asks, aren't we really just animals anyway? But the story of Scripture disagrees with Plato. The story of Scripture says that we're humans who have bodies and spirits, that humans are made for so much more than that, that God doesn't believe our bodies hold us back from virtue. That when He created us as humans, He called us what? He called us very good. So that's one drift that humans make when we mess things up in the world is we live as if we're animals. We live as if we're bodies without spirits. But there's another drift that humans make that seems more innocuous, but really is just as destructive. And that's the drift toward living like angels. And we're not angels, we're humans. Angels are spirits without bodies, right? And so the Christian subculture tends to spin this narrative that says, don't live as if you're a body without a spirit, live as if you're a spirit without a body. In other words, any kind of urge or instinct you feel, just repress it, just hold it back, act like it doesn't exist, and just continue your life of morality that you need to live. So church has not exactly been the place where we've taught about sex, but I'm here to tell you, culture's going to do the teaching if we don't. And to act as if it's okay to just not talk about these things because they're taboo is not doing any benefit to our kids. It's not doing any benefit to us who are struggling in our marriages and in our own lives. This is not just about the next generation. It's about us and our theology and our living out of faith. Can we be honest about this this morning? I mean, if percentages are correct in a room this size, in the month of December, three out of four of the men in this room viewed pornography. And I've told you my story before, but that's been part of my journey of what God has brought healing in my life to. So I'm not pointing fingers. In fact, this is a growing issue for women as well. About a third of women in the last month have viewed pornography. So we see this just as a male issue. This is a huge issue that goes back to the whole animal thing I was talking about. But if we had three-fourths of our men who were beating their wives, do you think we'd do something about that? I'd have a real problem if we didn't speak up and say something about the epidemic that was going on in our church if it was that. But I'm here to tell you, just as destructive to families is the sexual immorality that goes on in our homes that we just kind of act like is no big deal. It's just how animals are called to live. God has called us to more church. And it doesn't mean we repress our desires. It's not the angel instinct, but it is to say we're killing ourselves and we can't allow these taboo subjects to go untalked about. I mean, how many of us had parents who really developed in us a healthy view of sexuality. Some of you have those stories of your parents walking you through those conversations well. To this day, you have open conversations and a relationship to be able to talk about those things. But many more of us don't have that kind of relationship. Many more of us had to discover about sexuality through our friends at school, and sometimes through images that were seen on a screen, or through things that we had to, through our curiosity, find out. Church, it's time for us as parents, as as a congregation to help our kids along to give them a healthier view of sexuality. And how many of us have been through therapy or, or need to go through therapy? Because we're still working out narratives about sexuality that are not healthy narratives, are not true about who God created us to be. There's a 
woman in her young uh, mid-20s who's looking at getting married, who's been told all of her life that sex is bad. She's been told to deny a part of who God created her to be. So instead of talking about sex, she's learned to just stuff the conversation. And then you see all kinds of problems created because when she gets married and she exchanges vows and exchanges rings, somehow you're just supposed to push this button and everything shifts from this view of sex as everything bad to all of a sudden being a life-giving gift. Our teaching causes all kinds of problems if we're not careful and we live into the angel narrative that says we don't really have bodies, we don't really have instincts and urges, we're just spirits without bodies. I'm here to tell you God invented sex. He actually commands us in Genesis 1 to uh, populate the earth. Pleasure is not a bad thing when it's within the constraints and boundaries of how God teaches us to, to, to live out sexuality in our lives. But God created us to enjoy the physical world. And when we deny the physical world, we deny a part of who God is and how good his creation is. When we deny the fact that a child's birth is a mystery and it's this gift that God gives, when we deny the mystery of sex between a married couple, when we deny these things, we are denying a part of the good things that God brings into the world that we need to talk more about and be appreciative of. You and I were not created to live as animals. You and I were not created to live as angels. God created us as human beings. We were created with bodies and souls. And when God created us with bodies and souls, he didn't make a mistake. In fact, he calls it very good in Genesis 1. The animals have a physical body and no spirit, and angels have a spirit but no body. And the problem is when we get those things backward, we begin to live into all kinds of dysfunction. When we ignore the spiritual dimension to our existence and our experience, we end up living like animals. And when we deny the bodily experience of what God's given to us, we end up living like angels. And both ways are destructive to the calling that God has put on our lives to live as humans. There's a phrase that I'm growing more and more frustrated by that I'd love for us to just take out of our vocabulary this morning. It's a phrase of a, in a couple of songs that are out there. It's a phrase that I hear on Christian circles. I've used this phrase before. The phrase is this. I'm only human. But how often do we use this phrase? We use our humanity as an excuse for our immorality, for our mistakes, for our accidents. Now, there's a, a reality to that, that we're not perfect, that God is still forming us and transforming us. But I think it's time that we see our humanity not as an excuse and not as a handicap in life, but as a great honor and privilege to hold on to and to live into. I'm only human says that somehow there's been a mistake made. Somehow I can't perfect this on my own. No, the work of God, of transformation in our lives, of sanctification is more and more to live like the full human that Jesus was on the earth. He's the perfect example of what this looks like, to live fully embodied, to live with the Spirit as well. You're not only human, you are called to be fully human. You are human, just like Genesis 1.31 tells us, and he says that it's very good. Psalm 139.14 says that each and every one of us, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And when we use our humanity's excuse, it's somewhat of an assault on God's creation that he sees as very good, that he wants to continue to form and change in us. We bear in our bodies the image of the living God. Just hold on to that idea for a minute. You were created in the image of God. People see the reflection of you, and somehow they see God at work in all of And it's important, as we talked about last week, that we begin to continue this process of transformation. That Jesus' life, when he comes down to earth, is something we're called to embody and live out as well. And we'll never get it perfect. But along the way, we point people to the good news of what it means to be human. 
that God wants to fully restore in us. The incarnation, the story of God coming to earth through Jesus, is proof that God cares deeply for this world and for our humanity. He cared enough to send his only son into the world to die on our behalf, but he also sent his son into the world to suffer and to live this life of perfection that gives us a picture of what the real life is. If you want to know what it looks like to be fully human, not I'm only human, fully human, look at the life of Jesus. Our teaching in church has unfortunately led us to think poorly of our bodies. And how much self-image issues, how many of those issues stem partly from this whole idea that our bodies were not created as good things? That if we could just remove our bodies from the equation, we'd be a lot better off. I'm here to tell you, that's Plato, it's not Jesus. Jesus is calling for us to live good, full lives, embodied lives, but lives transformed by the Spirit of God. And he wants to use each one of us to be a part of his project to restore all things. Jesus came to die for your sins, but not only that. He came to show you the best way of life possible. He's the second Adam. He's Adam 2.0, and he got it right. So may we as a church follow in his path. May we as his people forsake the path of angels and animals, and may we pick up the story again, not of only being human, but of living into the full humanity that's pictured in Jesus Christ. This is not a message of perfection and trying to perfect ourselves on our own. This is not a message of clenching our fists and trying to perfect ourselves. This is only a work that the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. Of handing ourselves over and confessing sin, of opening up more of our lives to His transformation. This is what we need to do this morning again. Maybe it is that you've drifted into an animal story. That you've just said, well, I I can't control myself. I've just got to go on doing what I'm doing. I want to give you hope this morning. Those curriculums aren't correct. You were made for more than that. And the Holy Spirit of God can move in you. Maybe uh, Celebrate Recovery is a place that you need to find some healing. There, we have a great Celebrate Recovery ministry that meets on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, and many are finding their full humanity in ways they haven't for years and decades because they're confessing their sin to God, to one another. They're working through those struggles. It doesn't matter what your sin struggle is. That's a place you can find healing. But maybe it is that you've drifted into the angel narrative. Maybe it is that you've kind of repressed everything and acted as if the only way to live a holy life is to collapse the tension the other way and act like you don't have desires. God desires that you enjoy the good gifts of the earth. But it's only good gifts when we enjoy them within the parameters that he's taught us to enjoy them. So whatever it is today, maybe this is the morning you need to give up a piece of that. Maybe you need to, again, restore that full humanity to ask God to provide your body back if you've been living as an angel. Or maybe it is to say you're more than just a body. You've got a spirit that God wants to perfect and work in. So this morning, whatever it is, make that decision today to to make a decision to to follow more in line with him, to to open up your life to the Holy Spirit. I would love after this service, if you've got questions, to talk more with you this and set up a time to to pray with you, to to work with you. There are others in the back who would love to receive you after our service today and pray with you no matter what your need might be. Church, this is good news. God did not give up on the earth. He came back to restore it all. And there is power available through the Holy Spirit for your life as well. Let's pray as we close our time in the Word. Father, we're sorry for the ways that we have not lived in the calling you've given to us. You have made us human. And we're sorry for the ways that we've seen that as something that holds us back. We're sorry for the ways that that we've drifted towards living like angels, God. It's not our calling. 
Those beings are your beings, and, and you do your work in ways we don't fully understand. But you've given us a calling as humans. And sometimes we've drifted off to live like animals, God. Some of us have lost hope. So God, today I pray that you would fill us up with hope again, that you would give us strength for the journey ahead, that you would remind us that your spirit lives inside every one of us who call Jesus Lord. God, I pray for your spirit to continue to work in our lives, that we might be this flesh and blood of Jesus that is good news for our community around us. We love you, God. We thank you for every good gift you give. We commit this week to living more fully human than we have in the past. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.